You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. When you think about planning for a worst-case scenario, what do you picture? If I told you right now that extreme weather, massive storms, unlivable heat, all the rest and all the social disruption that goes with that was not just possible wherever you live, but inevitable, what would you do? You'd probably try to move, right? But where? We already know that some parts of the world, maybe even some parts of this country, will become extremely inhospitable over the next few decades. And there are already people, the ones with money, naturally, moving around the country and the world to get ahead of it. So if you could, where would you move? Now here's why I asked you to picture this. Because when I did that, my mind instantly went to the countryside, living off the land. My family has some land out there far, far away from anything. We could stockpile supplies, buy some generators, grow our own food, hopefully. And there you go. Safe, right? Well, not so much. See, it turns out that what many of us think of when we're told to plan for the worst or prepare for a coming collapse is actually the opposite of what's practical. So today, our guest will tell us how to ruggedize your life in advance of what comes next and where you should do that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Alex Steffen is an environmental writer and a climate futurist. He writes a newsletter that you can find on Substack called The Snap Forward, New Thinking on a Fast-Changing Planet. Hey, Alex. Hey, glad to be here. I want to ask you first, before we talk about how to apply it and, and what personal ruggedization means from just... What does ruggedization itself mean? This is a term you got from somewhere else. Ruggedization is a term that comes out of the military, actually, and it, it means a system or, or a tool that is built for extreme circumstances, right? So a ruggedized laptop is one that can take a bullet and still let you check TikTok, right? Um, I adopted that term and applied it to how we are readying our lives and our places and our systems and our economies for the kinds of massive impacts that the planetary crisis is bringing our way. How do we ruggedize ourselves to be better prepared for what we know is coming? Is there a lot of ruggedization going on around the world right now? Could you give us a couple of examples of what that looks like? A recent set of studies looked at how well we're doing. And the fact of the matter is we're not doing nearly as much as we need to be doing. Anyway. No. But there are, of course, whole nations that, like the Netherlands that have um, you know, undertaken long-term systematic preparation for more extreme weather, rising seas, and so forth. And there are a whole lot of different cities that have undertaken various efforts of, for example, planting trees to keep the streets cooler, um, preparing flood defenses. Um, you know, uh, in Louisiana, there's been a, the beginnings of an effort to withdraw strategically from the most vulnerable coastlines. Um, what they call managed retreat. So there are lots of piecemeal efforts being done everywhere 
or at least in a lot of places. But we don't have any specific place that's doing everything right yet. How much would it take on a global scale? I'm not asking for a, a dollar figure, a timeline or anything, but like how far away are we from confronting not the climate crisis necessarily, but confronting the need to change where and how we live? Well, we're there now. There are communities that right now are being severely impacted, in some cases even wiped out by disasters and ongoing longer-term degradations, you know, that simply make make the place untenable. I mean, whether that's a wildfire burning a town to the ground or a hurricane, you know, battering an island or, you know, just long-term erosion of topsoil and drought and so forth, these things are already impacting the viability of places where we live. Um, and it's certain that no matter what we do now, because we've put so much pollution into the atmosphere, and we've degraded so many ecosystems, and we're still doing both of those, that there's going to be a large part of the earth that's less habitable than it was historically. And part of what we're fighting hard on in terms of climate action and ecological responsibility and sustainability and so forth, part of the reason why we need to push hard on those things is to limit the extent of that loss of habitability, right? The extent to which places become brittle and endangered. How much of that is still within our control? And here, I don't necessarily mean of, you know, we get our act together and get emissions to zero tomorrow. But I mean, how possible is it to ruggedize some of those areas of the world to the point where they would still be habitable, even given what's coming? Yeah, I mean, so there's two parts of this that are not entirely in our control, or at least we we can't accurately predict them. One of that, one of those parts is just how bad are we going to let things get? We don't know yet. We're, we're taking steps. They're not big enough steps. They're not happening fast enough. Um, and so we don't know what the range of disaster that we're facing is because that's still largely dependent on what we do. There's another part of this is that we don't actually know with real predictability how bad and in what forms disasters are coming for us. Because one of the things that we're seeing is unprecedented conditions happening at the same time. You know, we're seeing a massive wildfire followed by an atmospheric river of rain that washes huge, you know, whole, whole mountainsides away and, and inundates farmlands and roads and cuts places off and so forth. Um, things are happening now that haven't happened before, and they're happening while other things that haven't happened before are happening. So one of the real problems we have is a loss of predictability. Now, that said, there are definitely places that are, if not safe, safer than other places. They're at less risk of having certain things happen. Um, they are better prepared to meet those things. And, and that's where we have to ask, uh, you know, what, what can be done? And a lot can be done. If we were willing to put the societal resources into it, I'm not sure that at this point we could save every place, but we could at least retreat from the places we can't save in some sort of orderly manner and ruggedize all the rest of our society to be much better prepared for the storm that's coming. You know, the problem is we're not doing that. And so more and more places are winding up in situations where it is just a matter of time before they take hits that will permanently, um, you know, undermine their prosperity, possibly kill a lot of people and, and certainly you know, darken the future of that place. We're going to talk about personal ruggedization in just one second. That is uh, why we wanted to speak to you today. But because you kind of obliquely referred to massive forest fires followed by an atmospheric river, um, you know, our show is Canadian. Everybody knows that you're talking about BC last year. 
I thought it was really interesting when you touched on predictability uh, in your piece about what you might have said about BC before that happened. Can you get a sense of sort of how uh, your perspective on the province has changed recently and why it's uh, why it's such a good example of what we're dealing with? Yeah. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm a real fan of BC and, and of Vancouver in particular, and uh, I think it's a fantastic city. And uh, I, if you had asked me, you know, say five years ago, pick a city that at least for the you know foreseeable future is looking like it has some good odds, that it has a lot going for it, I definitely would have put you know Vancouver on the top of that list, or if not the top, certainly you know up there. And but the the thing is that we face a situation where you don't get to say this is safe and this isn't. You only get to say about any particular place this appears to have better odds than that. Right. And the thing about odds is that, you know, when you roll the dice, sometimes they come up snake eyes. Right. Um, That no place is totally safe. And we can have these combinations of extremely unlikely events made more likely by the planetary crisis happening, you know, all together or in rapid conjunction. Right. So to have a zoonotic pandemic that is connected to, uh, you know, to the planetary crisis and to have. Uh, you know, massive drought, uh, huge megafires, smoke, you know, problems. I mean, the pollution on the West Coast has been terrible in some of these incidents, you know, followed by an atmospheric river, followed by mudslides and flooding and everything else in just a, so- a short period of time. That's not a very likely outcome, right? That, that wasn't a highly probable outcome. But it does show that we aren't, we aren't making bets that are totally safe bets. Everywhere we go, we're having to wrestle with odds that have changed. We're having to wrestle with a discontinuity, right? What we thought we knew from the past isn't the best guide to what we now know is coming or what we can see is coming at least. And so we're needing to anticipate rather than predict. And that's a really difficult place to be in, especially when it comes down to our own personal decisions about how we live our lives and take care of the people we love. So let's talk about trying to do that, uh, anticipate what's coming and prepare for it. How do you define ruggedization as it pertains to you and me and everyone else? Yeah, so personal ruggedization is the process of looking at our lives and trying to figure out how we improve the odds of, you know, of not becoming the victim of a disaster, of being in a place that has better prospects, um, of, you know, of coming out better prepared for what's coming. And for most of us, that is a factor largely of where we live and how we live in that place. Um, you know, some people are wealthy enough that they can afford not to care, but that's not most of us. Most of us actually really do have to care. We have to try and pick a place where the odds seem good that we're going to, you know, be able to prosper and be safe and secure um, over the decades to come as things really intensify. Because remember, everything we've seen so far is just a taste of what we know is coming in terms of the scale of problems. This is not a sarcastic question, but can you explain the difference between ruggedization and what people would call prepping? So one of the basic conditions of ruggedization is that we're looking for systems, right? We're all dependent on systems, whether that's, you know, somebody who comes and helps you, 
you know, fight a fire if one breaks out at your house or that somebody is, you know, growing food and somebody else is delivering it to the supermarket where you go to buy it, so on and so forth. To a large extent, personal organization is trying to make choices about places where the systems will remain intact or better yet, can be improved to be more rugged across a wider range of futures, you know, through smart action and building and policy and planning, right? Prepping is... There's a part of it that's that's totally real and good, right? We should all have water and food and emergency supplies. And, you know, it's not a bad thing to weatherize your house to maybe a little bit more of an extreme level than you might have and to, you know, grow a home garden and to harvest rainwater. These are not bad things. Where the Where the concept breaks down is the belief that one can provide all of the things that you want for a good life in the absence of those other systems. Right. And that's where it converge into a fantasy where, you know, I would say if you're in a situation where you are needing to use a large, you know, weapons cache to defend your dwindling food supplies, you've already messed up. Right. You've already made a catastrophically bad choice somewhere. And that is not a certain outcome. And it's not even a likely outcome in many wealthy parts of the world, even in the worst case scenarios. Right. The total breakdown of society is a pretty rare event in history if you actually study it. So prepping, prepping can easily become a fantasy of self-contained power, you know, the power to be self-contained. And we just aren't, right? We're not, no man is an island, right? We're, we are connected to other people all over the place in all sorts of ways. And the better we are at identifying the systems that we really do depend on and making good choices about which systems we're connected to in what places and how we're going to help make those systems better, the better off we're going to be. So the difference between a first aid kit and a real ambulance. How do we choose? How do we assess what places will be uh, safer, more likely to have systems intact, uh, can be further ruggedized with our help? Like what should somebody who's listening to this, realizing they live in a place that they don't necessarily feel uh, will be too safe in the coming years, what should they be looking for? Right. You know, I, so I, I write about this a lot in the snap forward and I teach classes about it and stuff. So it's a complex topic, but let me try and boil it down to a few things. So the first thing that we're looking for is someplace that's safer, right? Not safe because no place is perfectly safe, but there, we know there are, there are risks that we're already aware exist and there are risks we're pretty confident will get worse, right? So we're going to have more heavy rainfalls and more hot days. So if you're in a place that's already on a floodplain or already gets dangerously hot in the summer, then, you know, you're probably in a place that you might want to consider relocating from because those are just going to get more brittle as time goes on. So the first thing is avoiding the known risks and trying to anticipate places that for, you know, that that look to be a little better off. Um, so mainly that's a moving away from big hazards. Uh, the second part is good bones. And one of the realities is that um, places that have a lot of concentrated infrastructure and a lot of concentrated capacity, like cities, um, are generally actually better off during, you know, during disasters and in resisting the effects of disasters. There's more 
um, you know, supply lines are shorter. There's more ability to get things done. More people share fewer, you know, a smaller amount of infrastructure, so you can build more things more quickly. Uh, you're not dependent on long highways and long train lines and so forth as much. So in general, you're looking for a place that already has a functioning capacity to reduce its need, reduce its demands for energy and water and 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 uh, you know and long supply lines. So good bones is the second one. The third one is honestly wealth. And this is a tough one because what do you do about you know wealth if you're not wealthy? But we know that places that are wealthy, first of all, tend to have more resources to act, but they also tend to secure larger portions of public resources, right? It's not a surprise, I, I bet, to anyone listening that wealthy places tend to get more than their share of the public resources that are available to do things like ruggedize and prepare for what's coming. They tend to get responded to more quickly in disasters, etc. So, you know, honestly, one of the criteria is you probably want to put yourself, you know, if you can, in a situation where your neighbors are able to be effective advocates for your self-interest. But again, a lot of people can't. A, a fourth thing is what I what I think of as as context. So one of the big problems that we have here in America is that there are a great many places where, where the ability to govern is breaking down because people won't admit to what reality is, right? So there are places that are actually passing laws, you know, to prevent local governments from considering climate change in their planning, for instance, or, you know, or, or demanding that insurance companies insure everyone even though some places are now uninsurable, meaning that insurance rates go up, fewer people end up getting it, everyone becomes more vulnerable, right? There are these kinds of things already happening. So you want a context where good governance is possible. And that, you know, that extends into a lot of different realms that I go into elsewhere. But, you know, but the basic idea is you want a place that's, that's able to manage itself democratically with some amount of effectiveness. And then the last one is really, uh, is, about, is about the heart. It's about what, where's your home? Because while there are some people who are young or, you know, whose families are engaged with these things and ready to move as well, or who have an adventuresome spirit and are ready to move, you know, across the country or across the world, if that seems like a good idea, a lot of us have deep ties to the communities we live in and have extended families or, you know, big circles of friends or whatever, and we're not ready necessarily to pick up and, and move northwards or whatever. And so for us, you know, we all have to, I think, try and figure out how we balance the desire to ruggedize our lives with the necessity of, of being true to who we are. And so in some cases, that means trying to figure out how best to live within a context rather than to change the context altogether, right? So rather than how do you move, how do you maybe, maybe move within your region or within your city, but also how to start thinking about how your community and your home are you know, built and lived in and serviced and, and make better choices about how to be prepared for a wider range of circumstances. So those are the five things that I look at. Um, and obviously, each one of these we could do a whole podcast about. But I think that gives you a sense of what we need to start thinking about as individuals. I want to talk about the city's point for a moment, because first of all, all those five things are incredibly logical when you think about them. Why do you think there is an assumption among so many of us that, you know, when the crisis finally hits home or when things get really bad or, you know, if we're going to prepare for it, you go and you get a little place out in the country, you get away from the cities and you stock up like that is you know, not to dwell on the prepping thing. We'll put that behind us. But like that is the myth, right? If you want to be safe and be on your own and survive. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, the dream, first of all, for a lot of people. I think a lot of people just have the dream of, like, wouldn't it be great to have a little piece of forest somewhere? And, you know, um, but also that is the, the, the paranoid myth is that you're going to need that. You're going to need your bug-out cabin. Um, and on top of that, I think we have this newest layer of cities are very expensive. And so a lot of people are trying to figure out, well, what if I could live in a small town or something and, you know, and, and just do for myself, go off grid, you know, we can live our own lives. So there's that component as well. And they're all, I understand all three of those. Um, the, the thing to think about in terms of ruggedization is that we have needs and those needs are provided for by systems. And many of those systems are invisible to us or poorly, or we don't understand them very well. Right? So we're most, I bet you most people on earth had no idea that there's an international network of public health agencies constantly working to keep them from dying from disease until just a couple of years ago. Right? Most people have no idea how many treaty organizations there are, how many, you know, what kinds of infrastructure exists in cities, right? There are people who, who are protecting you right now from, say, you know, mosquitoes and, and malaria, right? There are people who are, you know, making sure that your drinking water is safe, that when you turn on the tap, there's something there. A guy just came by to look at a tree in my front yard and make sure it wouldn't crush my house in the next few months today. There, there you go. There you go. And so when, when we dream of retreat... What we're doing is often not thinking through how do you replace all of those functions of society, but rather how do I just ignore that all those functions exist and take care of the really obvious ones like grow your own food, you know, build your own home, provide your own energy with, you know, maybe some, some solar or something. You know, it's, it's, it's the surface level detached from those larger systems. But the thing is, in that situation, the minute those larger systems go down, you are not better prepared, you're worse. Because the places that concentrate value and capacity are the places that where those systems will be down the shortest. You know, and that's just history tells us that. That, like, you know, the lights get turned on first, like, you know, in the places that are best prepared to turn the lights on. You know, there are still people in disasters years later in sort of more remote areas around them who are waiting for everything to come back to normal. So being, you know, surrounded by effective systems, infrastructure, uh, you know, people who know how to advocate for themselves and lots of value. That's just the value of people living together. Um, that is a better move for most people than retreating to the woods and hoarding guns. What if you can't afford to move? What if the communities, and uh, I think you've mentioned this in your piece, and it's pretty obvious. I mean, look at Vancouver. A lot of the places that you would consider uh, safe or safer uh, are already very expensive or already very crowded. Um, if you can't afford to take that obvious step, what can you do well, so to there, ruggedize there some, yourself There are you some are? steps. So the first thing is to recognize that we have, we face a, what I call a bottleneck, which is that Many more people are in need of a place that is rugged or can be ruggedized than those than places exist that are like that, right? That's part of the failure that we've had over the last 30 years as we failed to do anything about climate and ecological crises is that we've simply missed the window to save a lot of places. And so one of the consequences of that failure of leadership is a lot of people are going to get stuck in places that don't have great futures. Um, that makes me very angry, but you know, let's just leave that there. How do you avoid becoming one of those people 
is, I think, the question that we need to ask ourselves, especially if we don't have money, right? And, and the first things that we can do is just be honest about ourselves in terms of our current situation, right? If we own, do we own a house on a floodplain? Do we own a house that's like, you know, in a wildfire zone? Do we, are we in a place, you know, are we at sea, are, are we, do we have a beach house, right? Are we at the places where things are likely to be destroyed because there's less and less likelihood that things that are destroyed are going to be built back and there's more and more danger of them being destroyed. So the first thing is get out of harm's way. And that means that, you know, we're going to see, we are already seeing the value of some places that really are very at risk, you know, dropping property values dropping, people not being able to sell their homes for what they paid for them because nobody wants to live in a house that's about to be destroyed any year now, right? That can't be insured and so forth. So the first thing is get away from the danger to the extent you can. If you are in a place that you can't move from, especially because of, you know, heart's connections, right? Because it's your home and it's where all your people are. Then the next thing you can do is try and pick a location for your actual, for where you live, that's, that's a decent one. And you can start trying to think about how you make the place you have better prepared for the kinds of extremes we know are coming. The next thing that you can do is you can look at the place you live and you can start to think about how you make some intelligent steps to ruggedize your personal situation, right? So in terms of heat, you know, heat waves, you can think about planting trees, putting shading over your windows, you know, removing asphalt, maybe even painting your house a lighter color, these kinds of steps. And there are guides to these sorts of things. Um, you can prepare your house to be better, you know, in better shape if there's local flooding or heavy rainfall. Um, there are these kinds of things you can do. And there are guides to doing them, and they're worth doing. You can also make your life a little less dependent on extended supply chains, right? So one of the things that people uh, get wrong about, for example, electric vehicles is there's this idea of, well, what are you going to do with an electric vehicle if the, if the power goes down? And the reality is you're actually probably in better shape than most people because you've got a massive battery in the car and often a massive battery in your garage you know, that are charged up and you're able to have power while things, you know, break down around you for a little while. And so there are these kinds of steps. But, but the real thing is, is avoiding risk, doing what you can to minimize the risk you still have. And then the third thing is talking with people. Because that's where we're still breaking down. I know so many people who are trying to do their best to change their circumstance in this regard. And just, you know, everybody has that uncle who doesn't believe it or you know, the relative who just doesn't want to talk about it, or even sometimes a spouse who just gets overwhelmed when it comes up. And so trying to figure out ways to have good conversations with your friends and your family and your colleagues about the kinds of things we know are coming and the kinds of steps we could start to take now to be less unprepared. That's a good move. Okay, I have to ask you one last question now, and it's about those conversations. Is there ever going to come a time when the planetary climate crisis will be so real and the effects of it so in everybody's face that there won't be people who don't want to talk about it. I used to think that that point was inevitable. Now I feel like we should have hit it already and we haven't. So I wonder if we ever will. Oh, I think we are on the cusp of it. I think it is, I think it is an impending uh, thing. I think we, you know, the whole point of talking about the snap forward is the snap forward is what happens when people recognize that the way they've been looking at the world uh, is outdated and wrong, and the world is now very different than they were told, and they now need to think in new ways and take new actions in order to secure the future that they want for themselves, right? There's a personal discontinuity that comes with that. 
the world that I was expecting to happen, where I built my dreams and hopes and ambitions, is no longer there. What do I do now? And a lot of what people describe as climate anxiety and climate grief, I think, are directly connected to that feeling of, I thought the world was this way, but it changed, and now it's this way, and that's pretty scary. We're having that same kind of a process at a societal level. We have you know, interests who have uh, devoted themselves to avoiding that kind of conversation using tactics of predatory delay and climate denialism and other things to keep us from discussing what's real. But it is so real that it is, it is not just inevitable, it is already changing very fast. What I worry about is that I think most of us are unprepared for the scale of our unreadiness, right? We're unprepared to discover that, wow, some of the biggest changes that have ever happened since humans have existed are unfolding now. And my city, my state or province, my nation, you know, has no plan, right? We're not, we're not getting ourselves prepared for what's already happened. And we're totally unready for what's coming. And I think that that is a major potential source of societal strife and conflict. And that, that actually does scare me because I think when people are terrified, they do bad things. And I would like people to be not as terrified, but rather to really understand what's happening and come together to take the kinds of actions we need to take to avoid the worst, because we still can. It is still entirely within our power to avoid the worst case scenarios of impacts and to avoid the worst case scenarios of vulnerability. Um, we can do a lot better than we're doing. And a lot of that starts with us making the decision in our own lives to be the kind of people who are making things better. I hope we can have you back uh, after we've all snapped forward and nobody will have done anything stupid. But I doubt it. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Alex Steffen is a climate futurist. You can find his newsletter on Substack. It's called The Snap Forward. That was the big story for more from us. Head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find a previous conversation with Alex there if you're interested after this one. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can give us a call, 416-935-5935. You can find The Big Story wherever you get podcasts. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Ebian Abdegir and Braden Alexander are our producers. And Rajpreet Sahoda is our research assistant. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a safe weekend. We'll talk Monday.